Today is um, the first day of our spring session, 28th of August 2016. And as I mentioned yesterday, we're going to um, have a look at the, the Metta Sutta over the next few days. Uh, we just introduced this um, chant into our morning chanting service in Sesheen. And um, we've, we've, we've had some metta in, in Sesheens before. We've done guided metta practice in some Sesheens, both in the uh, round before dinner and in the first round in the morning. But um, as Sesheen proceeds and, and its silence deepens, it can feel um, a little bit intrusive to be um, introducing this especially because uh, it may not be something that everyone takes up. It can be helpful to some people, but it can be uh, more of a distraction to others. So um, we're going to try this out, uh, just adding this sutra to our morning uh, chanting. doesn't mean we won't do um, guided meta practice again. We may. Um, but I want to just give this a try. Um, We bring in metta because um, it can be helpful as a kind of antidote to um, feelings of, of uh, self-worthlessness, um, even uh, self-hatred that quite a lot of people struggle with. Um, anger uh, turned on ourselves Often when we, we don't get what we want, you know, um, anger and, and craving are sort of two sides of, of one coin. And meta practice is uh, known as an antidote both to fear, which is, is um, aversion that often underlies anger, and also to craving. So we're going to see if we, of chanting the sutra can be a kind of way of, of setting the tone for our Zen practice. You could say the emotional tone. Um, this is not something that's dealt with directly by Zen practice, but it's an important component of our mental training. Um, Alan Wallace is an American shamatha teacher in the Vajrayana tradition, um, though he draws on, on all the teachings of Buddhism. He talks about there being four types of mental imbalance that we need to um, rebalance, you could say. And he, he names these as cognitive, attentional, cognitive and affective. Cognitive means um, uh, ways in which we want the wrong things. We want things that actually take us away from genuine happiness rather than um, lead us in that direction. Then attentional has to do with our, um, obviously, our attention and how untrained it is, how unruly, how it... it um, we don't have control over it most of the time. 
then cognitive is to do with our misperceiving things. We see things um, in a distorted way, um, and so um, this feeds into our, our um, wanting the wrong things. They're all, all of these are closely related. You could, you could say that when we, um, if our attention isn't focused and, and um, uh, concentrated, then we, we um, can't see things clearly. And when we can't see things clearly, then we want the wrong things because our view of life is distorted. The last one of the four is effective and it um, arises really as a result of the other three being out. And our effective imbalances are, are when we respond emotionally to things in ways that are unskillful, unhelpful. And these unskillful emotional responses can range from frustration uh, right through to despair. In talking about these these four, um, Alan Wallace then then divides them further by by looking at three ki- for each of them uh, three kinds of of problems we have with them. So under the the cognitive imbalances, the imbalances of our desires and intentions, he lists um, deficit. Um, Hyperactivity and dysfunction, and this is the same for each of the of the four. So, um, in cognitive imbalances, the deficit is um, apathy, loss of a desire for uh, awakening, for liberation, stagnation, where you where you get to the point where you can't imagine you could feel better or come out of your, your state of stuckness. Then hyperactivity is um, the opposite. Some uh, obsessive desire um, fixated on certain um, results, fantasies about the future, um, so overexc- you could say overexcited desires. And then the third one is dis- dysfunction. This is a desire for things that aren't conducive to our happiness and to other people's happiness. And of course because we don't exist independently, our, our own well-being can't arise uh, independently of the happiness of others. We, 
with with attentional imbalances imbalances, uh, the deficit is just our inability to focus, to put our mind on one thing. R- rather, our mind becomes dull and disengaged. Hyperactivity is where we're um, uh, restless, distracted, fragmented. And uh, the dysfunction would be focusing on things in ways that are afflictive. Um, not really, it may, there may be some concentration, but it's on things which don't um, help in the long run. Um, uh, becoming addicted to uh, online poker, for instance. You might be very, very focused on that, very concentrated, but in the long run it's, it's not going to um, serve your long-term happiness. The last of, of these um, is the affective imbalances and the, the deficit would be kind of indifference, just not, not um, having a heart that's open to others, being shut down. Hyperactivity would be um, wild ups and downs in our emotions, going from elation to depression, craving to hostility, or or um, getting infatuated with somebody, and then they do something, and that infatuation turns into contempt. Hostility. And then the dysfunction would be just emotional responses that are, are not appropriate to the circumstances. For instance, um, delighting in somebody's misfortune. And for this last one, the effective imbalances. The, there are a set of antidotes which are, are prescribed in Buddhism which are the Brahma Viharas um, sometimes translated as the divine abodes and in our translation of the Metta Sutta that we're going to look at um, the translation is sublime abiding so lofty place to to live from and the, the Metta is the first of the, of the Brahma Viharas and then there are three others all of which are uh, come out of or are different aspects of Metta so Metta um, loving kindness usually translated Karuna compassion Mudita sympathetic joy and it's joy in the good fortune of others and the last one upeksha equanimity the classical understanding is that that each of these 
is uh, an antidote for for a basic afflictive uh, emotion. Metta is an antidote for craving. Karuna is an antidote for uh, indifference. Mudita, an antidote for depression. And Upeksha for prejudice, partiality. So I could say that Zen, the, the, the emphasis or the, or the um, priority in Zen are on um, working on our untrained mind, on our training our attention, and also on the cognitive aspect, training our attention, focusing our mind in order to see into it, to see things as they are. Whereas in, in meta practice, the, the, at the forefront are uh, effective training, training our emotions, um, but it shares with Zen also an emphasis on the attentional training because meta is a, uh, is a concentration practice, a samadhi practice. So introducing this this chant into our into our morning service, just see it as a a way of, to remind ourselves to just pay some heed to um, you could say the 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 emotional colour of our practice, how we're doing the breath, how we're doing the koan. And, and as much as possible to, to take up these practices in a spirit of gentleness, loving kindness, patience. The very uh, detailed um, and comprehensive teachings around the Brahma Viharas. Um, each is seen as having um, approximate cause. So the, the metta or the loving kindness, the cause of it is perceiving the lovableness of sentient beings. Perceiving the lovableness of sentient beings. This is what is behind it. Behind the compassion is perceiving the helplessness of sentient beings. The words, their suffering. 
behind um, empathetic joy, mudita, perceiving the joys and virtues of sentient beings, perceiving and appreciating them. And then behind equanimity, perceiving the responsibility for their own deeds of sentient beings and for one's own. So seeing karma and its workings. So in the in the Metta Sutta, we'll see that um, a good part of it is um, talking about virtues, qualities of of character that will aid us in perceiving the lovability of sentient beings. And out of this come all the other three. Because if you love if you love anyone, then obviously you also wish to relieve them of suffering. You, you take joy in their joys, and um, ultimately you uh, see that person clearly. You see them in their wholeness, with their including their their. Um, karmic inheritance so now um, turning to our to our text um, there are actually two um, texts in the um, Pali Canon which are both referred to as the Metasutta, but this particular one um, is from the Sutani Pata, and uh, it's chanted widely within the Theravadan tradition in classical Buddhism, and it's seen as both a theme for meditation, and it contains actual instructions in brief. But it's also understood to be a kind of formula for protection known as a parita and particularly an antidote for fear you think here of the the, the um, um, quote from the uh, Christian scriptures perfect love casteth out fear And this is this um, comes out particularly in the in the backstory behind this these words of the Buddha, um, and these come from uh, a Sutta Nipata commentary, and uh, probably probably um, something that was invented after the time of the Buddha to kind of um, explain it or highlight it. it and it's a story, it's, it's quite a lovely little myth of, um, tells the story of fi- 500 monks who were um, off 
wandering around looking for a suitable place to stay for the rains retreat, which was um, was and still is a tradition within Theravada Buddhism to stay put, to stop wandering around um, and stay put for the duration of the rainy season when it was hard to travel and to do intensive practice. And this... this um, has carried right through into um, Buddhist countries with no rainy season. Um, in Korea, they do 90-day retreats, and um, also in, in Japan, angos, the same length of time, three months. Anyhow, these um, um, this group of monks, uh, large group of monks, at a certain point in their searches, came uh, across what's described in the in the in the Sutta as a beautiful hillock um, in the foothills of the Himalayas, and it, it seemed like the absolutely ideal location for them to do their retreat. There was a cool, clear stream flowing through the area, and there was a town quite nearby, a market town. So somewhere where the monks could go begging for food. And in fact, the, the locals were delighted um, that these monks had come and actually begged them to stay, built them huts, said, we'll look after you over this, uh, over this uh, rains retreat. And so the monks seemed to have an ideal situation for practice. And they each of them... Um, chose a tree to meditate under just as the Buddha sat under a tree for his uh, practice little did they know that these particular trees were all inhabited by tree deities and um, these tree deities were um, quite devout, actually. They didn't feel that they could stay in the trees above the monks because it would be disrespectful for them to be higher, higher than the monks. So out of respect, um, they moved out of their, their trees, which were their homes, and um, was sort of out on the edge um, of this, this area where the monks had gathered. And the sutra says that they um, were like dispossessed villagers whose houses had been commandeered by the officials of the visiting royalty. And they, they didn't realize it was a three-month rain retreat, so they kept on watching anxiously from a distance and sort of tapping their thin fingers and wondering when the monks were going to move on. But they didn't because it was the three-month rain retreat, rains retreat. And they started to feel anxious and want to get their houses back. And so, rather perversely, they decided to um, frighten the monks to, to, um, so they wouldn't stay under the, in this particular area. They created um, terrifying visions um, that, for, uh, for the monks and um, dreadful noises 
and even uh, finally a, a sickening stench that filled this whole grove, this whole hillock. And the monks did their best for a while, but eventually they couldn't stand it anymore. And so they went back to ask the Buddha's advice. And the story says that the Buddha used his, his um, all-seeing eye to check out the whole situation. And he told the monks, you've got to go back to that same spot. It's the only place that you will be able to awaken. But then he armed them with this, this Metasutta and they all learned it by heart and were contemplating and reciting it as they, as they walked back to their uh, former location. And the story has it that these tree spirits were infused and, and uh, by the warm feelings that they felt radiating from these monks when they came back. And it was probably a journey of some days or, or possibly even weeks. But by the time the monks got back to this place, um, they were radiating love and kindness. And the, the, the tree spirits, their hearts, were softened by this, they changed their minds about the monks and they actually decided to care for them, look after them, even create a very uh, free from noise space in which they could practice. And we're told that all 500 monks, because of this, became arahants. So great claims made for for this um, sutra, practicing it. We may um, not want to take it literally, but we can understand that uh, it's pointing to uh, something very real um, that people, beings, respond to our state of mind and because of that we do in, in, a, in a, a real way um, create the world that we experience Through our, through our reactions, through our um, emotional states. It's said in this commentary that no harm can befall a person who follows the path of metta. that mean no harm remind, remind me of the of the chapter 25 in the Lotus Sutra where 
um, very very similar uh, claims are made about um, calling on uh, Kanon Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva of compassion, she who hears the cries of the of this world. Don't think it means that that we um, won't necessarily uh, be attacked or or die, but that no harm, no no enduring harm will be experienced by us if we're living out of love that's um, behind our words and thoughts and deeds So now, um, turning to our actual, our actual text. It's a very short text. We just have, uh, in the original Pali, there are just um, uh, ten four-line verses. But it's seen as being quite a complete teaching, uh, covering all three aspects of the Dharma. The first part, um, Shila or virtue, um, it, it, it lists a whole lot of um, basic virtues that, um, if we develop, will will support, will be the foundation for our practice of loving kindness. And then in the middle part, um, it teaches about samadhi. It actually gives us instructions on doing uh, meta practice. What our intentions should be. We talked a little bit about that already. And also um, a description of the actual practice. And then right at the end, um, it addresses prajna, wisdom, the culmination of, of uh, meta practice, uh, an insight, seeing the nature of things. So the first line, um, this is what should be done. This is what should be done. Um, if you look into the into the Pali for this, the 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 verb here, uh, karaniam, doesn't really um, imply a should as we might understand it. It's being some adherence to rules or or regulations, because this is not the way that that virtue is seen in Buddhism. And the closer translation would be just. To be done, 
This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. And this goodness here um, is a very rich term in the Pali, meaning meaning good, the word is atta, meaning good, but also welfare, well-being, and at the same time, purpose, meaning, and goal. All of these are, are implied in this word. And what, what it implies here, if we take these all together, is that, that, that we, um, working for um, well-being of ourselves and others is a meaningful goal. And, and more than that, it's something that can be attained. It says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. It's something that can be learned. We can learn how to benefit ourselves and others. It's not something that's bestowed upon us by um, a divine being, but uh, something we can cultivate. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Um, the again, the Pali is closer to literally to one who wants to break through to the state of peace. You could say maybe closer translation would be one who is on the path to peace. And the, the, the words that are used for this path of peace are tam, santam, padam. And it's usually uh, capitalized in uh, translations because um, it, it's referring or can be taken to be referring to ultimate peace. Nirvana. So this is um, something to be done by one who who is um, wants to to attain liberation. So it's very much at the centre of what we're doing and practicing. to stop living out of our delusions and our afflictions. To free ourselves from our habits that sabotage us again and again.
This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, who's on the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. This um, the pronoun here, them, um, is just being used to give us a, um, a, gen- a gender-neutral pronoun. So let, let uh, him or her be able and upright. But the point here is that the Buddha is talking to us. May you be able and upright. Again, this emphasis on um, on ability, close to skill, skill, but perhaps a bit more. Not just being efficient, but but um, being able to do a thing well. In other words, that being able to do, to live and act in in ways that take wellness, well-being into consideration, our own well-being in the long term, and others' well-being. Able and upright. The Pali word here, suju, uh, means very straight. You can understand it as as meaning meaning ethical in the sense of lined up, well aligned with with the way things are, with truth. So immediately we're in, into talking about about Sheila or virtue. I came across a, a passage in a book by Robert Thurman. Um, this is called uh, Infinite Life, where he's he has a chapter on Sheila and he, he tr- translates um, Sheila in, a, in an unusual way as justice. And here's a little bit about what, of what he says about, about this. The Sanskrit term Buddha used for justice in its highest sense was shila, which relates to the word for cool and to verb roots for calming and pacifying. The word just in English also means right in the sense of fitting 
just right, we say, when something takes place, holds its place, in a way that is exactly harmonious with what is around it, causing minimal disturbance, positive consequence, reinforcement, lessening of stress and tension, perhaps even pleasure through its beneficence and beauty. We could, we could understand it as, as um, fitting or, or, or frictionless, the sense of alignment. Just can mean mere or only as in just so, indicating a thing's aptness and sufficiency in its impact or role. This connects with the enlightened vision of things' ultimacy in their unique particularity, as in the term thatness, tatvam, or the more elusive suchness or thusness, tatata. This is a very important um, concept in Zen. To appreciate the, the, the uh, suchness of things, the way they are. So justness can have a metaphysical feel if we use the abstract suffix ness as if its rightness, propriety and correctness was positively gracious in the sense of imparting peace, calm, happiness and well-being to all sensitive beings around it. This is very um, helpful to understand our precepts as coming out of love out of a wish to to impart peace and happiness and well-being to all you're not um, commandments from some higher being but the, the flowering of our connectedness. In the sense of its guiding beings' actions to remain graciously attuned to the nature of reality, we find injustice the effective source of ethics and morality. It is effective in guiding them because it is based on a reality that can be discovered and verified. So people can reasonably internalize such justice as a code of ethics or morality and enact it in their thoughts, words and deeds. It thus energizes the grand system of ethics or morality that transformed Enlightenment societies throughout history, bringing individuals and nations abundant blessings. What is ethical is what is purposefully done, said or thought, or not done, said or thought, that fits gracefully within such justness as attunement to reality. What is beneficent to sentient beings what increases the harmony of the relative world by enhancing our sensitive adaptation to it. What is moral is the same, though moral connects perhaps more to the following of rules, at best also an internalised sense of the rightness, propriety and justness of such rules. Thus the superior ethical and moral life 
is not just that which follows a set of rigid rules set down by arbitrary authority and hallowed in particular traditions. These can tend to ossify as conditions change and end up sometimes accomplishing the opposite of what they originally intended. Nor is this ethical and moral life merely what seems most useful for each situation, what can be calculated from a certain perspective as accomplishing the greatest good for the greatest number. There are sets of rules, there are calculations of positive consequences, and these are important. But ultimately, it is justice, as justness, that is the ultimate warrant and the ultimate goal of all ethics and morality. It is the sheer graciousness of justice, its conducivity to the happiness of sentient beings that grounds the rules and guides the calculations. So this, this um, launching of uh, um, Metasutta with stuff about virtues is, uh, is no accident. These two are uh, closely and deeply related. Well, um, time is nearly up, so we'll stop here and recite the four vows.